Direct from both Eternia and Etheria, from deep within the confines of Castle Grayskull, it's time to join in the battle for the power of goodness with Chris Vint and the Masters of the Universe Chronicles. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Master Universe Chronicles. It's been a while since uh, we've had an interview, we're having a couple of discussions, so this is actually a jam-packed show with quite a lot of contributions, so stick around. And uh, if you're not wanting to listen to it in one chunk, why not listen to maybe half an hour one day, half an hour the next day, because I think it's going to be a two-hour show, just judging by the amount of content that we have, but it's all good, all, of course, pertaining to the wonderful universe universe of masters of the universe see what i did there um yeah um obviously this is the tom cedo interview which has been on the back burner for quite some time so apologies for that but obviously with san diego um i had to discuss um the figures there and uh just doing the bios discussion round two as well um as I said, uh, I have a lot of um, contributions here, so uh, I'll just uh, turn off some of what we're actually going to go through. Um, we have a, a couple uh, that you're familiar with. Uh, James Garnhart, who you know better as Roboto, um, is actually interviewing Beastman, um, so see how that one turns out. Um, we also have James E. Talk with the Power and the Honor um, 10 Facts of the Month, so see how many he gets this time. Uh, James Sawyer returns with the Chronicles Comic Corner. I can almost say that without stuttering. Um, so we have three old ones and we have three new ones. We have Arthur Burlow, um, who um, is in charge of a great Facebook page called The Great Rebellion. Um, it just talks a bit, bit about that and uh, will become a regular feature to do with um, certain things going on in The Great Rebellion. Uh, Luke Nicholas, who you may know as Sween Halleck, who's been on a couple of discussions, is doing one called Dream Teams. Now, obviously we have the Master of the Universe versus DC 2-packs, so these are ones that Luke himself um, would like to see. Um, so it's a pretty interesting one, uh, one of the characters, I have no idea who it is, so Luke does a great job of explaining it. And last but by certainly no means least, we have Mike Ficklin with um, uh, flicking through the pages. Um, uh, obviously, I've had Roger Sweet on the show and uh, had a lot of feedback on um, Pop Culture Network, etc., um, just to do with that. So um, he's actually going to um, give us a bit of an insight into the book in case you haven't managed to pick one up or you haven't read it. Um, so while Jim Sawyer covers uh, all the comic aspects um, Mike will be covering all the books like the Ladybird books all that kind of stuff um, so yeah I was very happy with Mike so um, they're all hopefully permanent fixtures so uh, let's hope anyway um, I just wanted to say that uh, before we go and head over to Arthur um, that September 20th uh, marks the f uh, one year anniversary of whenever the Masters of the Universe Chronicles actually began. Now, I would like to hear from you fans what you particularly liked about Master Universe Chronicles, whether it be episode commentary, favourite interview, favourite moment, anything like that. 
Um, I just would like to get more fans involved, especially in Mark the One Year Anniversary. Whether it's even just to wish um, the Chronicles a happy birthday. Uh, you don't need to send in the cards. Vintage figures will do fine. Uh, I'm just kidding. But um, uh, what you can do is I'm on Skype. My username is Vinto316. Um, you can phone there and leave a voicemail um, or if I'm online feel free to have a chat with me um, but uh, just type away first of all just in case you're not sure what time it is with me and it's maybe one o'clock in the morning and I uh, don't want to disturb the neighbours um, so yeah if you want to do that by all means go ahead you can also send me a short uh, mp3 file uh, it can't exceed 10 megabytes unfortunately um, and you can send that to me at vintoman at popculturenetwork.com uh, any of those there would do fine if you can get them um, to me as soon as you can that would be brilliant I would really appreciate that um, so that's just basically it I uh, just wanted to uh, welcome you all back to the Master Universe Chronicles it's been a while since I've done one of these intros so hopefully I haven't uh, I don't know if I had the touch to begin with um, but if I still have it then that's fine anyway I'm rambling so let's head over to the fan contributors part of the show and now it's the fan contributors part of the show hey thanks to Crispin for giving us the opportunity to introduce the Great Rebellion Collectors Club in an important podcast like Masters of the Universe Chronicles we are big big fans of the Chronicles and are really honored to be a part of it today. So, what's the Great Rebellion? It's a Facebook page, but not a Shira only page. It's meant as a place where collectors can come to and chat freely about really anything they want, not just toys. I am Arthur Bullo, and I'm the guy who had the idea of the page. Together with Brent Vesby and Johnny Coipisto, whom I have recruited as co-administrators, we continuously add what we hope is interesting content in there and also make sure everything runs smoothly. Our hope is that in time people can start using the page to establish new friendships and connect with other fans who share their same interests from all over the world. Basically that's where the name of the page comes from. I'm a big Shira fan and in all the Masters of the Universe factions uh, the Rebels have always been my most favorite group. I'm so happy we're getting Bo in January, and hope Mattel also releases a glimmer soon, preferably without wind-blown hair. <laughs> and the thing I've always enjoyed about the Rebellion is that they were a happy bunch of friends. And besides that, they also shared great values between them, like friendship, respect for each other, for their diversities, as well as love for freedom, justice, and most importantly, peace. That's what I hope our page to become, a bit like Shira's Great Rebellion. But that doesn't mean it's reserved for Shira fans, or that the content is meant to be princes of power only. Uh, we're hoping to get many more JLU fans, Transformers fans, uh, G.I. Joe fans, Thundercats fans, and fans from any toy line really in the forthcoming months. We also have a forum, by the way, and while the page was my idea and I recruited the other two guys later, the forum was the other way around. It was Brent's idea and he recruited me and Joni later, after which we'll have the forum and Facebook page go hand in hand together and we have many projects and 
cool never seen before ideas which you'll definitely be hearing about very shortly uh, when you'll see what I'm talking about with your own eyes uh, basically we needed a place where these could be organized in sections and to have a set of topics for each entry to actually make this work properly but I can't tell more now because it's top secret I was not much of a Masters of the Universe fan when I was a kid to be honest uh, I didn't like the show it was only when Shira came in and I watched the, the Secret of the Sword that I became an iHeart fan first of Shira and then of He-Man but to be honest the episodes I love most are the ones where He-Man and Shira were together I love that stuff I remember as a kid watching the episodes of Shira and hoping each time that He-Man would show up I think the twins of power complement each other but I find Shira a way more interesting character than He-Man uh, he's a big guy, powerful, strong, fighting evil Shira was more of an original character a strong powerful woman fighting an alien army was something totally new in 1985 something never seen before Shira was the first strong female heroine other female heroines like Wonder Woman had to rely on special apparatus or invisible jets or stuff like that or they weren't the real hero of the show but just a female sidekick of the main male hero uh, Shira was totally different uh, she is a very fascinating character in my opinion that's why uh, we've made Shira our virtual guide in the Great Rebellion who instructs me, Brent and Joni on our various activities like the team of the week every week uh, the rebellion has a different team we're now four weeks old our first team in the first week was now what wouldn't blown her uh, this was a cool homage as Mattel would say to my rants with which I tormented the whole Heyman and Shira community across any and all forums that dealt with the twins of power uh, I am talking about my rants regarding Shira's hair in case you've been living on the moon and haven't seen at least one of them <laughs> uh, anyway uh, second week was Teddy Bear owners tortured here that was a little joke on a friend of mine who collects teddy bears oh, enough said um, week 3 was San Diego Comic Con is here that's self-explanatory and week 4 was we want ramen in 2011 self-explanatory again uh, a member of the rebellion asked us for this one actually um, week 5 is blue is the color of evil dedicated to none others than the smurfs and for week 6 I was thinking about something really cool for Masters of the Universe Chronicles fans but I have to talk about this with Chrisman first well that's all really I hope to see you there on Facebook and possibly on the forum too once we reopen it just look for the Great Rebellion Club using the Facebook search engine and you will find us immediately again thanks to Chris for this opportunity you're a true friend of the Rebellion Chris as Shira would say and thanks to all fans of the Chronicles for listening to this again sorry for my very very bad English and for my awful voice <laughs> more about the Rebellion soon bye
Well, thank you, Mr. Vent. Yes, I am back once again, deep within the walls of Snake Mountain, for another interview with one of Skeletor's minions. Finally, the long-awaited interview with a man who needs no introduction. But I simply cannot help myself, so I'm going to introduce him anyway. Since day one, with the creation of the series Bible, this villain has always been, and continued to be, Skeletor's most loyal henchman. Yes, through thick and thin, he has stood by his master's side, awaiting his orders. Of course, I am referring to none other than the one, the only, Beastman. Beastman, thank you for having us over today. <sighs> Glad you could drop in! Beastman, if you were to take on one good guy, who would that be? Who do you think you could win against? You know, if no one was, well, no one else was around, just you versus this other guy, who do you think you could take on? Do you think you could take He-Man? Even you can't stop He-Man. I never said I could. This this is not about me, Beastman. You're, you're changing the subject. Now answer the question. As you wish. Who could you take out fighting against one-on-one? -on -one? You don't say. You think you could take out old Duncan, huh? Yes. Okay, well, I'll buy that. I do recall you holding his own with him at the famous battle at Antwat Gar. Yes. Tell me, Beastman, are you and old Boneface working on anything at the moment? Yes. Oh, yeah? Any chance you can tell the listeners here what, what you're working on? The Diamond Ray. Oh, cool! I love the diamond ray of disappearance. Is there any way you can let me see it? Please? But that makes those who see it. Oh, right. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> yeah, I do not want to disappear into another dimension. <clears throat> that would not be good. Well, can I at least see that nifty little box it's in? Just lead the way and I'll follow you. Wow. Here we are in the famous throne room. Okay, Beastman, uh, where is it? The diamond's gone. What? Oh, come on, man. I really wanted to see the, the actual box that holds the famous diamond ray of disappearance. So, uh, I guess this means you're gonna be, uh, in trouble with, uh... Skeletor! Dang it, Beastman! Forget it! The diamond's gone! Let's get out of here! No! No, wait a minute! You've gotta stop letting him push you around. If you ask me, he treats you like crap! Why are you always taking orders from him? Like, he doesn't even ask you politely! <laughs> Okay, just to prove my point, just as an example, what did he say to you the last time he asked you to do something for him? I command you to do my bidding. And do it now. You see? You see? That's exactly what I'm talking about. You need to have more of a backbone, man. You gotta stand up to him. And he, man, he just tosses you around like a rag doll. Now look, I know He-Man personally. Okay, I'll deal with him. I'll do you a favor. I'll, I'll talk to, 
to the big guy. Okay, don't you worry. He'll start taking it easier on you. Even you can't stop He-Man. I, I didn't say I was going to stop him. I, I'm just going to talk to the man. Explain to him that your feelings have been hurt and, it, you know, have him take some consideration the next time you and he meet. That, that's all. Gotcha! Okay, well, it's been a great interview. Uh, it's been an honor talking with you in person. And, uh... Until next time. Merry meet, Masters of the Universe Chronicles listeners. My name is Sween Hollick, and I'm here with the first edition of Dream Teams. As a fan of Masters of the Universe and a lifelong comic reader, you know I'm all about the Motu Classics DC Universe Classics 2-packs. And one thing I love is trying to guess who the next Motu and DCU pairings will be. In every segment of Dream Teams, I'll be offering up my predictions on, or simply what I'd like to see in future Masters DC 2-packs. Just to be clear, I don't claim to be an expert, nor do I have any inside information on the release of future Mattel products. This is simply one fan's speculation. Any similarities to anybody else's ideas are pure coincidence. With that said, let's get down to the theorizing and hypothesizing. At the time of this recording, I'm anxiously awaiting my Masters of the Universe Classics Orko figure to arrive. While rearranging my other Masters figures to make room, I got to wondering, who would be a good two-pack companion for the tiny Trollenthaumaturge? After an overnight period of pondering, I proposed that the perfect pack-in partner for Orko would be Mr. Mixius Pitlick. As you were listening to Masters of the Universe Chronicles, I think it's a safe assumption that you know enough about Orko to where most of what I could say would be redundant. While Orko is He-Man's minuscule magic-making mate, Mr. Mixius Pitlick, or Mixie for short, is Superman's obnoxious imp adversary from the fifth dimension. Mixie first appeared in Superman number 30 in 1944. In the majority of DC's stories, he's more of a perpetual pain in the neck to the Man of Steel than a fearsome foe. Although, like Orko, according to his new classics bio, he's capable of much more than mere mischief. Unlike Orko, Mixie technically does not actually use magic, but uses fifth dimension technology, which acts as magic to those of us in the third dimension. While Mixie is actually one of Superman's most potentially deadly enemies, his Achilles heels are his gullibility and absent-mindedness. In order to banish him back to the fifth dimension he calls home, Mixie must be tricked into saying his name backwards, and with a little persistence, Superman usually manages to hoodwink this half-pint into sending himself packing. There are many reasons to love a two-pack of Orko and Mr. Mixie's Pitlick. For one, Mixie is a character with very few entries into action figuredom, and would finally be introduced into the DCU Classics line. Additionally, like all of the Motu Classics figures in these two packs, fans who may have missed out are presented with another chance to get a hold of some of the earlier and currently unavailable Classics figures. What I would love to see most, though, are the accessories Orko and Mixie could come with. Like the San Diego Comic-Con version and the Matty Collector version, Orko could come with a Prince Adam with the same two heads as before, the original He-Man head and the smirking face head. For the sake of variation, 
Perhaps they could make Adam's top more filmation accurate in color, or add a sword holster to it. As for Mixie, how awesome would it be if his accessory was a new Clark Kent figure? Not only that, but the Clark Kent figure could also have two heads, one kind of aloof looking face, and another with a knowing smile and a wink on his face as it often appeared when looking at the audience at the end of the 1940s cartoons. Of course, the Clark Kent from the DC Superheroes line could be used, as well as a Prince Adam with only one head. But hey, if I'm dreaming, why not dream big? Well friends, there you have the first ever Dream Team segment on Masters of the Universe Chronicles. Speaking of Dream Teams, another potentially perfect partnership with Masters of the Universe could be Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. If you're down with the Green Teens, why not take a look at Radical Retro Turtle Toy Talk, which is my weekly video series on vintage TMNT toys. Catch up on past episodes at RadicalRetro.com and see a new show every Monday, only at www.popculturenetwork.com. Got any comments, questions, agreements, or disagreements? I can be reached at Sween underscore Hollock at popculturenetwork.com, as well as on the Primo Pop Culture Network forums. Thanks to Chris Vent for having me on his Pimpin' Podcast, and thanks to the Masters of the Universe Chronicles listeners for taking a listen to me speak and speculate on possible Masters of the Universe and DC Universe Classics dream teams. This has been Sween Hollock, and always remember to keep dreaming big. Hello, welcome to James E. Talk's 10 Facts of the Month. The power and the honour 10 Facts of the Month is... I like to call him, he just likes to call him James Etoch rambling incoherently, but anyway. Um, hello to you James, and are you happy that you got seven last time? I was quite pleased with seven, but I'm going to, I don't know if I'll be at a top like seven or eight, I'm just, I'm a bit worried that I'm never ever going to get that ten. You know you are going to have to shorten them, because you do waste valuable seconds by go, okay, mm, and then go like, blah, 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 yeah, blah. You say, you say waste, <laughs> really, it's all valuable information, every little uh, nugget of information is uh, pure gold. Yeah, well, the Shira one last month was a good one, so uh, I'm going to see, wait and see. Uh, all this is news to me of what he's actually going to say, so I have to, I have to put my microphone on mute. Uh, in case I laugh at something like Ninjor's costume or something like that. So, are you ready, sir? <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm good to go. Okay. Three, two, one, go. Okay, Huntara's design, Huntara, the character that appeared in the She-Ra episode, Huntara, was uh, based on Grace Jones, and originally, instead of a purple skin character, she was going to be black. So, uh, why they changed it, we do not know. In the UK Master Universe comic, it was stated that Claudine taught Catra how to become a cat, which is completely different to the cartoon. In the He-Man episode, The Shaping Staff, Faker was originally supposed to be coloured like his action figure, but uh, budget-wise, Formation thought, let's just do He-Man with glowing eyes. Um, in one particular UK Master Universe comic, Whiplash was actually coloured blue and purple, and it kind of worked. In the Golden Book, Secret of the Dragon's Egg, uh, you'll see the amazing one-shot villain called Goatman, who I've got a Oh, I don't want to talk about Goatman. Um, a deleted scene from Evelyn's plot from season one of He-Man had Teela teaching Prince Adam archery, but this whole scene was just cut for time. Um, Ladybird book Teela, um, was it uh, a trap for He-Man? We see that Teela's staff that comes with action figure. Oh no, that's going to be the first one next month now, isn't it? You got six. I got six. Yeah. I- 
I ha I was lucky that I actually put that because of Goatman. Oh right, yeah. Yeah, uh, you don't want to talk about Goatman before we let's, we. No, let's leave Goatman alone. I just I'd mention Goatman. I'd give him a little shout out, but that's all he's getting off me. Okay, well uh, there you go. That's uh, Jamesy talk. So uh, thank you very much, James, and look forward to uh, hearing what you have to say next month. Ah, uh, see ya. <laughs> <laughs> Hello all, and welcome to the second installment of Chronicles Comics Corner. I'm James Sawyer, otherwise known as Sala, and I'm sort of your host for these little segments. Um, what we do is we just look at various He-Man appearances in comics throughout the years. Last episode, we took a look at the DC Comics Presents issue, the first introduced He-Man into full-size comics by crossing him over with Superman. That's recently been reprinted in the Motu Classics versus DC Universe Classics 2-packs. Today we're taking, taking a look at the other comic that's reprinted there, which is the sneak preview insert that DC stuck in various uh, titles back in November of 82. The DC Comics Presents issue that we looked at last time is really a, a, basically a Superman-He-Man story. Not many other characters appear. You get Superman, He-Man, and Skeletor, basically Beast-Man, a couple other cameo appearances. The sneak preview insert introduces more characters and kind of broadens the horizon here letting readers know that it's not just a story about a couple of characters we're going to see a lot of characters uh, from this universe right off the bat the cover has Stratos appearing on it who doesn't actually appear in the sneak preview insert um, you've got Man-at-Arms riding Battle Cat you've got Zodak, Tila, He-Man battling Skeletor, Beast-Man, Merman tooling around in a Wind Raider for some reason so right off the bat, you can tell that there's a lot more going on here than just Superman meets He-Man. The tagline at the top of the book says, Where Science Ends, Magic Begins, which is a fantastic tagline for the entire Masters of the Universe franchise. I wish it was used more often on stuff. So we'll take a look at it here. Let's open it up. If you don't have the the insert, you should really think about snagging this. You can find most of those November issues dirt cheap. It's a very cool book. Even if you don't buy the Motu Classics versus DC Universe Classics 2-packs and tear them open and get this puppy out, you really should take a look at maybe picking up a back issue and just taking it out of the comic. We're introduced here to the concept that there's a multitude of universes. There's a multiverse where small changes throughout uh, the planets, you know, or one Earth versus another Earth, where there's such a small change, and then there's there's planets where there's huge changes, and there's a lot different, uh, a lot of different things going on. And they're introducing Eternia as such a place, because when have you seen a site like this? And there shows an object flowing down towards the planet. We pull back and we see it's Zodak riding in a chair, that looks very reminiscent of the chair included with Castle Grayskull. He talks about how a long time he has. Transversed the multitude of dimensional planes, and uh, he's looked at the stars for his guide and inspiration. But now Zodak has to come back because there's a sign that is bringing him back to Eternia. Now, for DC Comics fans, you can right off the bat see the inspiration in Zodak probably came from Metron from DC Comics, the Fourth World series. They both rode around in chairs and sort of bring cosmic balance. Now, it, Paul Cooperberg is the writer here, and he had been a writer of DC for a time before doing this, so it's, it's very possible that he drew inspiration from Metron in, in creating Zodak, because it was kind of a blank slate at this point with the characters, and Paul Cooperberg is, is bringing in a lot of concepts that will then be carried over into various other um, media forms of He-Man, like the Filmation cartoon and such like that. 
Anyway, back to the story. So Zonak is, is traveling along, and he's he's on Eternia, and he's heading because he has a job to do. He comes upon the, the palace, the, the royal court of Eternia. There's a big party going on, and Queen Marlena and the king are there. I should mention here that I, I neglected to say last time that Queen Marlena is introduced as being from Earth. That concept is introduced in these comics. It's carried over into the Filmation series, but it's first told here that Queen Marlena is from Earth. They look a bit older here than you, you may be used to. They uh, they both have white hair, you know. They're, they they seem like they're they're much older than Adam, you know. Whereas in the filmation cartoon, Marlena and King Randor seem like they were probably young parents. Here they look much older. So they're having a party. Um, Prince Adam arrives with a, a lady on each shoulder, and he's of course late. Uh, he he joins the party and he's he's very happy, you know. And he's playing up the whole playboy routine again here. Zodak shows up to crash the party. He he says, you know, of my powers, I'm bringing you a warning. Uh, you bring me your greatest champion, and he he must be brought to me now. And everyone's kind of taken aback because they know of Zodak's power, and they think he's gone mad, you know, because he's calling for for He-Man's head, basically. Adam, of course, as we all know, is He-Man, so he looks towards Zodak, and Zodak looks towards him, and they they share an exchange. And Adam knows, and Zodak knows that the secret is is not a secret to them. Zodak knows that Adam is He-Man, and he's basically calling him out, but not saying in front of everyone, hey, you're He-Man, come on. Tila shows up with the guard, and Adam basically says, you know, the guns won't help here. Tila ignores him, and Adam sees this as an opportunity to get out of there with Cringer. They head to the Cavern of Power, because at this point, again, just like the last issue, the Cavern of Power is the the key to transformation. He has to go there and talk to the sorceress for her to transform him into He-Man. Now, at this point, um, he, he he runs into the Falcon, and he assumes that the Falcon is calling him to the cavern for the same reason that he's heading there, because of Zodek's arrival, but the Sorceress explains when he gets there and she turns him into He-Man that it's actually because of Skeletor, and he's returned to threaten Eternia. So then we cut to Skeletor, and he's above a body of water, and he's summoning Merman and telling him there's a power in the water, I need you to find it because it could be the other half of the power sword. Mermaid goes down. We cut back to Earth because this is another crossover issue episode, and uh, or, I'm sorry, issue. And so Superman's at Metropolis, and some strange things are going on. A big creature comes out of the water, and these these two orbs fly out that he has to follow. Sorry, three orbs fly out that he has to follow. He heads down, and basically he's going through a gateway. We cut back to Eternia. He-Man's riding Battle Cat and heading off to find Skeletor when Zodak blasts Seaman off of Battle Cat and challenges him and says, you know, this this is not the day when you're you're supposed to head to, to Skeletor or whatever, you know, you're supposed to come with me now. You're going to have to come along with me, and, and He-Man does not agree to that. He's ready for a fight, and you won't delay him any longer. I have a job to do. So he jumps up with his battle axe and his shield and goes to attack Zodak. Zodak fights him back. There's there's a scuffle. And we get to see a lot of Zodak's main power here. He's really holding his own against He-Man. Battle Cat wants to join the fray. He-Man refuses and then turns and punches Zodak. Zodak takes the the hit full on and it just rises up, just kind of floats above He-Man at this point. And it's really a great moment for Zodak. For all the Zodak haters out there, you should really take a look at this issue because it illustrates just how cool Zodak can be. Meanwhile, back on uh, back to Superman, he's following these three orbs, pops out and realizes he's on Eternia since he's been here before. We cut to Castle Grayskull and all of a sudden, Skeletor's holding both halves of the power sword. 
It turns out that the the thing he sensed in the water was a gateway to Earth, and the other half of the power sword was there for some reason. They don't explain why, but it was just there. So now he has both halves, and he's going to unite them and get into Castle Grayskull, when Superman shows up, takes the swords away from him, goes to fly off with them, but realizes they're burning his hands, and Skeletor says, you're in a world where magic rules, and that's your main weakness. So Superman goes to hurl the swords away, Skeletor manages to grasp one out of the air, and the other one goes flying off to who knows where, but we're going to find out where. It comes and strikes He-Man in the back as he's fighting Zodak. He turns and goes, this is the other half of the power sword. This must be the, the challenge that, that the sorceress referred to. He takes off as fast as he can on Battle Cat to head out to, the, to, to find Skeletor, since that was his objective in the first place. Comes upon Skeletor standing over a defeated Superman, where Skeletor is holding the power sword and just kind of zapping away at him. He-Man rides up with his power sword and goes to, or his half of the power sword, and goes to hurl it at Skeletor. Skeletor is hurling a bolt of energy at him. They're both firing at the same time. The bolt strikes He-Man, and the sword pierces Skeletor's chest, and Zodex arrives too late. He says, I am too late. And he sees that the stars have claimed their victim, and that was his whole objective in the first place, was to just to keep He-Man from fighting Skeletor, because the stars had said that He-Man would die in battle with Skeletor. Skeletor rises up, and the, the sword is still piercing him, and he, he says, the power of the sword consumes me, and basically disappears into the sword. The power then transfers off and revives He-Man. Uh, don't ask me how it works, but it just works. Uh, Zodax sort of celebrates, saying, he lives, He-Man lives, and explains to He-Man that that was the whole reason that he had fought him in the first place. Um, all, uh, all's well in the end. Skeletor has disappeared, He-Man has revived, and Superman says, that's all well and good, but can somebody tell me what I'm doing here? Which I, I kind of asked myself what Superman was doing here. I, I understand that you know DC wanted to have another crossover to, to pull in the Superman readers again, and he was such a popular character, but this story really didn't need Superman all that much. It could have gone fine with just He-Man and Zodak and stuff, but it's still a good book. It's a great Zodak in moments, in, or I'm sorry, there's some great Zodak moments in here that you should really check out for, for those who, who aren't a fan of Zodak. And that is it for the two sneak preview crossovers. Uh, next time we'll probably take a look at the first issue of the DC miniseries, also written by Paul Cooperberg. Um, if you want to discuss this this book, uh, head over to Chris Vince Masters of the Universe Chronicles page, or you can head to my Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Masters of the Universe Classics. Now back to more of Masters of the Universe Chronicles with Chris Vint. Hello, Masters of the Universe Chronicles listeners. This is Mike Ficklin, also known as Vader SW1 on the HeMan.org forums. And uh, this is a new segment for Masters of the Universe Chronicles that we're calling Flicking Through the Books with Ficklin. Uh, what this uh, is basically is just a review segment of books dealing with Masters of the Universe or the Princess of Power toys. Um, I am very honored that Chris Vint has given me the opportunity to uh, be a part of his show here. So thank you very much, very much, Mr. Vint. And uh, before we get started here, I uh, just want to let you all know here that anything that I say during these reviews are strictly my own opinion. These opinions are not the opinions of Mr. Vint. They're not the opinion of anyone else on the Masters of the Universe Chronicles podcast. They're strictly my own. 
So, to uh, start off this new segment, I thought we'd start with uh, Mastering the Universe, He-Man, The Rise and Fall of a Billion Dollar, Dollar Idea by Mr. Roger Sweet and Mr. David Wecker. Now, David Wecker is the nephew of Roger Sweet, and I believe he is a writer, if I recall correctly. Um, so he was able to help his uncle out in writing this book, which is really serves as a memoir on the creation of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe toy line. I thought I'd start out with this review first because uh, I just finished really listening to uh, Mr. Vince's interview with Roger Sweet, and I thought it was very entertaining, and I thought it was very well done. Um, Mr. Sweet, however, kind of strikes me sometimes as pretty self-serving. And uh, seems like he doesn't like to give credit where it's actually due here. But getting started with the review on the book here, the book actually opens up with the telling of uh, Mr. Sweet presenting the He-Man trio to the higher-ups at Mattel here. And then he kind of goes off on a tangent explaining a little bit about the history of the male action figure toys. Uh, there really weren't a lot of successful male action figure toy lines. Um, prior to the creation of Masters of the Universe outside of G.I. Joe. I found this whole thing kind of interesting here. I'd always uh, wondered about the history of uh, toys in general. I've always been kind of interested in that here, so it was very entertaining reading that. Uh, the rest of the book here, uh, I have a hard time calling it founded in fact, because as we all know, there's always three sides to the truth. There's your side, my side, and there's the truth in between. And I tend to lean towards the fact that this book is probably a little bit self-serving of Mr. Sweet. He really doesn't seem to like to give credit to Mark Taylor or anyone else that he worked with on the creation of the toy line here. So uh, it is very much an opinionated book here. I, I, I wouldn't say it's the end-all be-all on the creation of Masters of the Universe. Um, I did. There, there is some really neat stuff in here, though, about the creation of some of the individual toys. Some thoughts by Mr. Sweet on uh, certain toys. Some very entertaining thoughts, actually, on the New Adventures toy line. Um, he even puts at the end of the book where he doesn't touch on some of the other uh, figures that were created. He kind of goes in and actually gives his opinion on... Uh, the rest of the figures in the line here. I thought it was really entertaining. I thought uh, he ha he gave some excellent insights into the actual creation of some of these toys, specifically where he goes into his little explanation about the creation of the Eternia playset, which uh, most uh, Masters of the Universe fan collectors of the vintage toys anyway uh, consider that kind of a holy grail. Uh, those things go quite expensive on eBay these days. Um, but uh, overall, I found the book... Uh, entertaining as an opinion-based book, uh, not as a fact-based book, as it were. Um, I guess I really don't have much else to say uh, about the book on the whole. I really don't want to spoil it for anybody that hasn't read the book. Um, I would recommend picking it up if you're interested in the history of toys, specifically if you're, in, if you're really interested in He-Man and the creation of the Masters of the Universe here. My name is Mike Ficklin, and I am VaderSW1 on the He-Man.org message boards. And next week, I will be reviewing another He-Man and Masters Universe book. Uh, one of my all-time favorites, actually, the Sword of Skeletor from uh, the little golden books here. So I hope you've enjoyed this segment. It's my first time doing a podcast. So be safe, and good journey. The Masters of the Universe Chronicles will return after these messages. He-Man.
Dragon Walker, Battle Armor, He-Man, and Skeletor and Merman each sold separately. Batteries not included. New Dragon Walker vehicle for use with most Masters of the Universe figures. Action figures each sold separately from Mattel. Hey all, you are listening to the Multiverse's most Mac and Masters of the Universe podcast, Masters of the Universe Chronicles. Once you're done hearing about MOTU, why not come take a look at some TMNT on Radical Retro Turtle Toy Talk. Every episode, we go over a classic toy from the original Playmates Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles toy line. You may rediscover an old favorite, or discover a new one. That's Radical Retro Turtle Toy Talk, and you can only find it at popculturenetwork.com. Hey guys, I'm Rob Bass, host of Not Mitten Box, and when you're not listening to the greatest podcast about He-Man, Mass Universe Chronicles, check out my show with special guest, the man, the myth, the legend, Chris Vint, as he helps us teach you guys all about the Mass Universe toys, such as Man-at-Arms, Cyclone, Merman, just to name a few, only on the Pop Culture Network. Hi, this is Larry Dottilio. You're listening to Chris Vint with the Masters of the Universe Chronicles. Thanks for listening, fans. Welcome to another interview segment of the Masters of the Universe Chronicles. Now, house phones are a great thing whenever they actually work. Uh, Unfortunately, with this gentleman, we had a little bit of a conversation, had a bit of a battery death, and now he's talking to me via Skype. Uh, Sir, if you would like to introduce yourself, please. Yeah, hi, my name is Tom Cito. And uh, I'm a longtime animator and director. And uh, at the uh, on the He-Man show, I did uh, 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 both seasons doing storyboards and animation. And then later on, Shira, I did some direction. Okay, well, Mr. Cito, thank you very much for uh, joining me on the computer now. We're on the phone earlier on, and we've chatted via email. So I think we've used all the all the information available to us to actually get in contact with each other. I th- I'm sure you'll agree. <laughs> yes, I think so. I, I was going to try carrier pigeons and uh, <laughs> smoke signals next. Also. Well, as long as the volcano ash is lifted by then, then that's perfectly fine. Um, but uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Cedar, for coming on and uh, answering a few questions for me. I really do appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule. It's it's greatly appreciated. Um, anytime, anytime. Do you, do you mind if I crack on with the first question then? And, uh, sure. S- hear some of your good answers no doubt so first question i have for you is how did you first learn about he uh, about he-man and from reading the material uh what were your initial thoughts about the show okay so uh in, in 1983 uh the animation industry was still in a bit of a doldrums it wasn't wasn't doing very well uh there was a recession going on in the states and in 1982, we had a long, contentious labor action. Um, a lot of Hollywood cartoonists were striking to try to get uh, uh, to keep more jobs within within the city, and um, you know, and the management tried to starve us out and all. So it was pretty. It was a pretty messy uh, uh, strike in '82. So as '83 began, there really wasn't a lot of work. Um, remember, in, in you know, the, the great Disney revival, you know, was was still a few years in the future. Uh, so Disney's what hadn't wasn't really doing very much at the time, and um, I, you know The Simpsons was you know eight years in the future, 
So there really wasn't too much happening. Uh, then we heard about how that there was this show popping up with a studio called Filmation. Now, Filmation had been around since the 60s. They had done shows like the Bozo Show and Fat Albert and uh, a few other things, uh, you know, um, you know um, Black Star and all. And... Um, they they had made this deal not with the television uh, not with the television networks in the states but for syndication meaning that it would be uh 5 days a week instead of the tr- uh, the, the traditional saturday morning uh, um kids television and uh, so the normal tv season was 12 episodes and this was going to be 65 episodes so it was quite exciting, and um, and Filmation began, began very aggressively hiring a lot of people to build up their staff. Okay. Um, and he, he, when you said my initial thoughts about the show, uh, I remember originally when I started working on it, and uh, you know, and I was sitting at a desk. I, I I said to the to my friend next to me, I said it, it was a Don Manuel, it was another storyboard artist, and I said, Don, the name of the show isn't really He Man, right? That's like a temporary name. That's just until they, they refine it. It's going to have some something that sounds more, um, uh, you know, earthy, you know, like Ragnar or Torok, <laughs> King of Stone, or something like that. And he goes, "No, it's really He-Man." Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> so obviously, uh, with you saying that they were doing like 60, 65 episodes, you know, was the thought of of that a huge workload daunting in such a way for you? Uh, no, not really, because, you know, in, in, in Hollywood, we really kind of, uh, you know, the, one of the things they do very well here is these large uh, amounts of, of, of television animation, you know, and, and uh, they, they have a very good infrastructure and a very good system to kind of make this work out. So um, I think we were all kind of happy that, that it just meant that it's going to be a lot of work. Um, uh, up to that point... It, uh, when you did when you did um, uh, TV animation like this, there used to be what was called a season, and the season was you know a studio like Hanna Barbera or the Patty Frailing or something would call you around March or April because they had just gotten their commitments from the networks of what shows they wanted you know the next Scooby Doo or the next uh, whatever Pink Panther or something, and you would work from April till about November on these twelve episodes. And then you get laid off, and then you make up the time in, in commercials or specials until um, until the season began again. And that was the way it had been for about the last uh, uh, 25, 30 years. Then uh, with this show, because it's 65, we had a year-round work. And um, that th- that was pretty unusual. That uh, that you know we would be having Christmas parties and New Year's parties and Easter parties, and uh, and we're still working on the same series. Um, obviously, you were primarily a storyboard artist. So, as a storyboard artist, how did you approach an episode, and how was the writer involved in the process? Well, um, which would, yeah, the the writers, you know, they gave us some very great stuff. Um, one of the things that 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 was fun about doing doing storyboards on these shows was that part of the way uh, that they would try to keep costs down because you know the show, uh, you know, was a very ambitious show. You know, it was very humanistic looking characters and doing very realistic things and uh, a lot of effects and such. Uh, uh, so the way that they would try to economize was a certain amount of, of reuse footage. Uh, you know, later we'll talk about stock footage systems. But um, in the storyboard process, we were told, 
you have you have to make at least thirty five percent of the show uh, uh, f- from reuse from other shows, uh, either other shows or stock. So you had to find stuff, you know, f- from other f- from uh, other shows and, and put them in. And um, it's kind of fun because it was sort of like um, it was sort of artwork crossed with crossword puzzles, or or you know, doing you know, it was like sort of like a puzzle. You're looking for the right pieces to fit into the right sections and all. Okay, so you were mentioning Filmation's uh, stock system. So, what was it like working with that? Now, if memory serves, in one of the DVD commentaries or DVD um, extras, you're talking about you know doing an episode, and you just wanted to use He-Man laughing over and over again for a certain period of time. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, that's like yeah. We would have a lot of fun. We we do a lot of teasing with one another, a lot of joshing, and and uh, and yeah. There was one show. There was a stock sixteen, which is uh, He Man has his hands on his hips, and throws his head back in a big and a big garrulous laugh, and. Um, and, and and I just thought that was a very funny little scene, and I thought let me let me put it in as many times as I can until it becomes really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, we had a uh, we had a senior uh, we had a senior producer director named Hal Sutherland, and Hal was an old time veteran, and we were all young lads at the time, and 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 Hal was sort of like our mother superior. You know, he would he would come over and whack you on the on the knuckles if you did something bad, so. <laughs> <laughs> not really but i mean i mean yeah he was the he was our authority figure so um so uh it was kind of fun trying to tweak hal and and get a reaction out of him so so you would see like how many times can i make this this character do this you know uh you, you know you know make this you know how many how many times can i put the uh, the laugh track um in the scene of he-man laughing until hal goes very funny take it out <laughs> <laughs> So I just wanted to interrupt. Um, there was another scene once where where Skeletor was telling his bad guys what he was supposed to do, what they were supposed to do to stop He-Man, and it was a very long speech. And 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 um, you know, personally, I would have cut it down a little bit now, but at the time and all, you know, we would, you know, I was trying to, you know, visualize that whole speech. So I'd have the shots of of, of Skeletor talking, and then I'd have the character. And then I have the other characters like Merman and Beastman listening, and there was that character called Clawful, who was the one with the uh, lobster um, claws for, for for hands, and um, and and at one point I, I I cut to Clawful listening, bored, you know, like sort of bored by by the length of the speech, and he started using his claw hands, mimicking like blah 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 blah, <laughs> <laughs> and then. Yeah, that brought down the wrath of Hal, and and, and and you know Hal Sutherland said, "No, very funny. Don't do that." <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> I'll never look a clawful again. No, so I won't. Light. Um, so, were there any inspirations involved whenever you were doing the the boarding for He Man? Well, we were doing. Um, as far as inspiration, I think we were, yeah, you, you know, we were looking at the action adventure shows, of the, uh, you know, um, that we all enjoyed. I mean, quite obviously, you know, the the old story about He Man originating from from uh, originally um, the the um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, um, um, what's his name, Conan the Barbarian movie. So they tried to make it that sort of, you know, you know, the, try to catch the same kind of uh, spirit or energy, you know, of um, of, of that uh, of that type of uh, show. And um, yeah, the sword and sorcery things were very popular then. Um, 
being an action show and all, you, you know, when I actually came to doing a lot of um, action sequences and all, action requires a lot more cutting than than just straight dialogue. You know, so you had to you had to economize in, in that in that you know the scenes that are just recitation where characters are just speaking. Uh, you know, you you sort of like you, you sort of like earn the um, the budget and everything that you could use on the more elaborate scenes. Okay. And you had to do a big action sequence. Okay. So, how long did an episode actually take to storyboard? And what were your initial thoughts? Obviously, it takes a while. I would imagine it takes a wee while for you to storyboard it. So, what were your uh, first thoughts whenever you saw He-Man animated on screen? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you see, the yeah, a half-hour show. It took like about uh, let's see, I think about I think about um, about four weeks, and then a fifth week for uh, for revisions. So it would take about two weeks to rough out the the thing, you know, meaning a very quick sketch to kind of like work out your ideas, you know, because it's not just like drawing a comic book; it's you're working out all the shots, you're working out. This is a close-up. There's a long shot. This is a the camera's moving here. You know this sort of thing. You know you have to you have to work out. You know where the where the where the commercial would be inserted and uh, you know the station connection and then where to put the um, the tran- uh, the transformation sequence. Um, so we have to. You have to plan out. It's it's basically sort of like you know like the blueprint of a building. This is like the blueprint of a, a of a half hour of television. So so there's a lot of thinking that sort of worked that all out and all and um, and that took time. And then of course you know you know then you had to draw it all up because it it, it gave ideas to the to the other artists down the line doing the um, you know designing the sets and then actually animating the characters. You, you know, when I was, uh, you know, when I had animate, I noticed that when a storyboard artist had done like a successful uh, um, character pose or, or, or expression that got a reaction from an audience, like a laugh or something, you know, I would use it and say, you know, if it, you know, if it's already there, you know, why try to reinvent it? And uh, so, so if you if you gave the animator strong poses and all to work with, it, it made their jobs easier. Okay, so uh, with the budget being higher for He-Man, were you pleased whenever you f- first saw the finished animation, especially the uh, transformation sequence? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The transformation sequence was done was done early on, and all. It, it's up, uh, you know, because they always knew that they were going to use this, and uh, you know, it, like you remember, it's a long transformation, and. Um, so they put so they put a lot into it. An interesting thing is that a lot of the people who did visual effects um, uh, on the uh, He-Man show uh, a few years later were all hired by Disney, and they, they were the same people doing effects in films like The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin. Like the, the almost the entire crew moved over after the uh, you, you know over to the uh, over to, to the Disney studio to work on that stuff. So they had some very high quality people working working for them on that. And um, yeah, I, I, I would say you know you know we were kind of very happy with the animation. You know, we had a mixture of artists. We had some older artists who had always worked on very low budget TV, and uh, their skills weren't as strong as some of the aggressive youngsters who wanted to do more um, uh, detailed and more um, uh, baroque, if you were sort of sort of animation. So um, so you you try to sort of like steer. 
uh, um, the, the more ambitious scenes to the more ambitious artists, you know, and 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 some of the other artists that who who's you know you know were more coasting, you would kind of give them the simpler dialogue scenes. Okay, so uh, I've had an interview with Robert Lamb, and he described working at Filmation as inspired lunacy. What are your thoughts on working for Filmation? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Filmation was a lot of fun. You know, it was it was a uh, it was like a big club. Sometimes the the uh, I, I I mean you, you know we were we were cranking out these pictures, and uh, um, the the storyboard staff itself uh, it was a very uh, it was a very chummy group of uh, of crazy people. And uh, I, I, you know I'm, I would come home every day to my wife and stuff and tell her about what was going on at the studio and we'd laugh and laugh and just <laughs> we just had a we just had a lot of fun doing doing silly stuff you know um there was a lot of um uh, you know um practical jokes and things around the studio and um people kept it light you know and and uh, and there was a healthy cynical kind of um sense of humor everybody you know you know there's something about how when you work on a very dramatic show um you you get a very kind of um satirical sense of humor as like the sort of a reaction to it you know well if you worked on a broad comedy your attitude may be completely different you know but the, but i think it's because it was an action show you know that 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 we just we just sometimes we just found things very funny Okay, uh, you were saying there about practical jokes and stuff. Um, is there any specific people or individuals that you can especially remember working with? And would you care to share a story about said individual? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. We had a, a, a there was a storyboard artist named Warren Greenwood, and uh, Warren from Western New York State originally, and uh, he was not. He, he was a uh, b- before this in his early career. He was uh, he's what you call in the states an underground cartoonist, meaning one of those folks that do that sort of like um, you know hippie comics, uh, you know that not the kind of like mainstream like Superman or Batman or something. And um, and anyway, and 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 he was a he was a very he was a very funny man. And um, I remember like we um, you know at one time they all brought in these large plastic water pistols and we would have like water pistol fights up and down. you know these are all adults these people are all in their 30s you know <laughs> we're running up and down the hallways like children acting stupid and um and one point like Warren jumped in and he sh- and he and, he, and he used his water pistol and he shot the thermostat of the <laughs> for the climate control and 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 the thing started fritzing out and sparks and smoke were coming out of it and we were like yeah you know right away and uh, <laughs> and um there was another. There was another artist who perfected the technique to sleep at his desk, which is which is what he would do is that he would put his arms in the two in, in, in the upper shelves of his of his desk, and, and, and kind of put his head down and sleep, so that so that if the um, if the uh, uh, if his supervisor would walk into his room and say you know you know how's that film part going, he would just sort of pick his head up. Take his arms down with um, with some with some paper in his hands, and looks like he was terribly at work. He was very busy. So, <laughs> Brilliant. so you animated certain sequences in both He Man and Shira. Um, how did this all come about then? Well, I, I, you know, there was always a little period of overlap uh, b- between the seasons where um, you would, fin- uh, you know, as you finish up on your final shows, you, you know, remember there's, uh, there's something like, you know, 10 to 12 artists working on shows uh, uh, just in the storyboard department. And then as we finish our part, it's like a big assembly line, uh, you know, it's being staged in the layout department who's creating the sets and all. 
and then there's the animators doing the, the actual animation and then the assistants working with them so it goes down the line you know um the um um uh, so, so as my job was finishing in storyboard, I realized that you know there, there could be a layoff until you know the next um, the, the next season began. So, being an animator, also, I said, "Well, I'll just move over to animation." You know, this way I can keep working. Mm-hmm. And um, and a lot of times I'll be working on my own shows, which was kind of fun. Okay, uh, speaking of that, um, the episode "Castle of Heroes" is credited primarily to you, but also to Dave Russell. Mm-hmm. Did you work with him on this episode? Uh, uh, usually, what we would do, yeah, we would split a show. Uh, like you know, some, many times, we would split a show. Like you, you know, the the shows was like a three act structure. So, so you would do one and a half acts, and then kind of work out with the, with the director and the storyboard supervisor where you would change over uh, to the next artist. Dave, I think um, he had left early on. So I think so I think I kind of took over that that um like like when I started like the show was already underway and I think Dave was moving on he wound up going into live action he did a, he's done a lot of good live action work but um I kind of picked up the second half of the show from 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 where David left off okay um one of the stars of well, obviously one of the characters was Queen Marlena. Um so how much fun was it to storyboard Bob Forward's first <laughs> script, the classic episode The Rainbow Warrior, in which Queen Marlena was the star? Yeah. Well it's it's funny, you know, because when you talk to Bob and all I Bob said he deliberately wanted to do a show about Queen Marlena because she was the most underused uh, character in the entire ensemble. Like, she never really did anything except kind of smile and blink, and, and she's there, you know, and she's Tila's mom, you know, and nothing much happens. And, and he thought, um, and Bob thought, wouldn't it be fun to make a show just about her? And, and, and make this whole idea about her being an astronaut who, you know, comes there and falls in love with the, with, with the King of Eternia and all. And, uh, and and Bob took it as a creative challenge, you know, and, uh, and, and Bob was like that, like Bob enjoyed challenges and he enjoyed um, unusual ways of looking at the series. You know, he once uh, he once uh, pitched to us the idea that he wanted to do a show called The Day Nothing Happened. <laughs> and, and what would happen is that Skeletor would be away on business. And um, and and King King Rander and Queen Marlena are wa- are working on the budget for the fiscal year for you know, for the following year. Orko's reading a comic book. Uh, Man at Arms is working on the um, uh, transmission on the Wind Raider. Uh, you know, Prince Adam's asleep under a tree. Uh, you know, and basically, like nothing happens. Like a whole half hour goes by. <laughs> Everybody's waiting for a battle, and like nothing happens. Like. <laughs> I'm and sure He-Man probably would have laughed an awful lot in that episode as well. I think so. I think so. Yeah, you know, you know, you know, you know, uh, you know, the the tiger's looking for a litter box. You know, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so you have the highest honor imaginable of storyboarding what is considered to be the worst He-Man episode ever, the greatest yes. show in Eternia. Whenever the circus comes to Eternia, so yes. what did you think of the script? I'm I I I am honored to have entered the pantheon of 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 of, of, of He-Man fandom and, and being voted worst episode. <laughs> oh, I think it's lovely. I mean, it's funny, you know, because you could 
you could tell on a TV show when you're sort of like headed towards the end, when you start to get these really kind of like, it's, um, I don't know if the writers were just kind of looking through their, their, their shelves for like the last couple of I- half-baked ideas they didn't feel like doing. It's like the, at the very end of the, start, the first Star Trek TV series, when they were doing Planet of the Nazis and Planet of the Gangsters. You know? so, <laughs> so usually, usually whenever they do a circus, you figure, okay, it's just about done. <laughs> you know it just seems like it just seems like like as an idea it was just sort of uh i don't know you know and then you know with the the elephant with the three trunks and um oh my god yeah, <laughs> and, and crackers he sounded an awful lot like mickey mouse yeah yeah that was very strange that was very strange so yeah that was the show i tried to put as much as uh, uh, yeah yeah i got sort of um yeah, I got sort of like naughty, and I thought, okay, how many times can I put He-Man laughing in this? Because it's such a silly show. Like, there's, there's no saving this one, so let's just let's just make it absurd. Yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of absurd, how much fun was it to st- storyboard the He-Man versus Skeletor battle on the trapeze? <laughs> oh yeah, right. Yeah. Yes, that was a lot of fun because see, usually you find when you're storyboarding. Um, the, the the writers don't really write you know what we call business, which is the physical pantomime of the of the characters. It's uh, uh you know the writers do a lot of dialogue and structure, but they kind of leave it to us to come up with the with the actual sort of um, w- with the actual sort of movements and you know you know how characters react and how they fall and how they jump on one another. Um, it's the kind of thing that yeah, it's it, it's difficult to put into words, but then but then to sort of plan out in the picture forms and stuff, and that's where we really kind of we really kind of come to the fore is 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 in in, in in constructing the pantomimes. Okay, so what prompted you to go from storyboard into directing whenever Shira came along, and do you ever regret not actually directing some He-Man episodes? Yeah, I would have liked to have directed some He-Man episodes. Um, yeah, I thought I, I just thought you know it, it, it was um, it, you know it was a natural move up, and um, and there were different uh, uh, you know you know I'd done the um, the storyboarding and I'd done the animation, and I and I and I thought I knew enough about these action shows that I think I could I, I could take over like a crew, and um, yeah, I just wanted the the, the chance to move up. And, uh, and and it, yeah, it didn't come till the till the Shira shows, but yeah, it would have been fun to do some He-Man's. Okay, and is there any particular episode that you're you're proud that you actually directed then? Uh, let's see. Well, I did the I, I, was it uh, well the first Shira I did I think was the Red Knight was that one, and then uh, um, that 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 was kind of fun. And uh, you know, I, I worked out an interesting intercut in there where there's this one scene where this like um, um, coach or something goes out of control, and um, and the Red Knight uh, um, uh, falls underneath these horses and then pops up behind the stagecoach. There's a very famous uh, stuntman in Hollywood in the uh, in the in the 1940s and 50s named Yakima Kanat. And he was originally a, uh, a, a um, I think he, I think he's Ojibwe, I think. No, he's Inuit actually. And uh, and um, and he was considered like the dean of stuntmen. And his famous signature stunt was on a on a on a on an out of control stagecoach. He would jump under the horses, slide completely through to the back, and then climb up the back of the coach. Wow. So we thought like, oh, let's do that. Let's let's do a Yakima Kanat and. Uh, <laughs> 
in, in this show, you know. And, uh, and I put in things like there's actually like a little eight-frame scene, which is very tiny. You know, 24 frames is one second of animation. So this is like a sort of a quarter of a second. And, um, and, and, it's, and it's a very quick cut of the, of the knight's hands grabbing a rope as he goes underneath the coach to appear at the back. And when you see it, it just kind of just, your eye just follows it naturally. And you don't think that you've seen three cuts. You, you know, it all, it all falls in as one action. And when that worked out, I felt, I felt very, uh, very proud of myself. <laughs> okay. Super. So uh, whenever you were directing, was there a certain style that you were going for? And did you always inc- try to encourage new animation whenever you were directing? Um, yeah, I don't know if I was going for a specific style. I think I was just, in, you know, because I I already kind of done, a, you know, my own kind of thing while doing the storyboards. Um I think I, I think I was trying to get more uh, more physical action in a lot of the shows, and, and and sort of like you know you know you know you would do the dialogue scenes and then but then whenever I could get a, a, some physical a chance for physical action I'd use it, and um and, when I, and again when I said too like I had some younger animators who were very ambitious and wanted to do more um, uh, more difficult work than just a simple open the mouth close the mouth blink the eyes. So um, I would try to get a couple of those, like Lenny Graves and Michael Gerard, and I would try, and I would give them the harder scenes because I knew that they would take it and really run with it, you know, and and kind of make it um, make it work. And um, what I would do is that you know each artist had to had to show the production that he had a quota, so that he did a certain amount of footage per week. So so if I gave them difficult scenes, I would also. I would also give them a, um, um, uh, you know, you know. I would also give them some easy footage so that they could get up, keep their numbers up, so that at the end of the week, when they when they describe how, you know, physically how much work they did, they would have like a, you know, a, a good amount of footage to show for it. But then also, I would get the quality on some of the, the physical action scenes. Super, super. So, whenever you were given a traditional stock sequence, for example, we'll take the transformation sequence, did you ever think of ways to mix it up um, to make it feel new? Yeah, you have to try to disguise it and stuff so it does, it's not obvious. You know, I mean, I mean, you know, if you look at the, the classic Disney film 101 Dalmatians, there's a lot of reuse in it. There's a lot of uh, cycles of, of uh, dogs walking. You know, I mean, how many times can you animate a dog walking? You know, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, the dogs walk here, the dogs walk there. And, uh, but the thing is, it's so well disguised that you don't notice it. You know, the, the, the thing, uh, uh, the trick is when the audience is aware of a technique, then it, the technique is a failure. When the technique's successful, you don't notice it. It's just you just take it in as reality. So, um, so there was a certain amount of um, you would you would call work in and out of stock scenes, meaning that you would take the stock uh, scene and you would change it slightly. And you know, I, I, for the readers, who don't um, the listeners who don't understand, stock is a thing like He-Man walking. He-Man walks into scene. Uh, He-Man you know, laughs. <laughs> yeah, He-Man laughs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He-Man running. You know, you know, like that. Um, there was one a story artist named Stephen Hickner who later became a, a, a director at DreamWorks and uh, and at uh, and at uh, Amblin. Uh, he did. Um, 
I think he directed, he co-directed the B movie with Jerry Seinfeld. But um, when he was doing the, uh, uh, when he was working on the storyboards at at, at Filmation, uh, um, you know, he would make it a, a point of honor to try to get a, an unusual scene into a show. And I think he had one. He he picked this very bizarre scene, and it's Triclops uh, 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 sitting sitting on a on a on a bench or a bucket or something and this and, 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 a, and a power beam comes in and destroys the thing he's sitting on and he falls on his bum and um and, and steve was determined to get that in every show <laughs> he says somewhere i'm gonna fit this in somewhere i don't know where <laughs> okay so also is it fair to say that the he-man storyboard department began to make a name for themselves both as writers and directors Yes, I think so. I, I, I think, uh, you know, because it was kind of the, uh, to, you know, I, I know each department thinks that they're the, the linchpin. You know, I mean, if you, if you read a book about uh, editors, they say that, you know, editing is the real place where the film gets done. And writers say the script is the place where the film gets done. You know, so, of course, I'm going to be nationalistic and I'm going to say that, you know, the storyboard department was where we really did it, you know. <laughs> I would have agreed with you, anyway, there, sir. There you go. There you go. I'm sure Zatillo would say, "Oh, no, it's the scripting. That's the important part." You know. So, so, so we each have our yeah. We each we each have our loyalties, you know. And um, but um, but yeah, I think you know you know Bob Ford went on to become a very successful. Uh, you know, he, he's written books and has done a lot of screenplays and. Um, uh, you know, uh, like I said Steve Hickner went on to become a, 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 a director at, D- at DreamWorks and a producer at Amblin, and uh, you know I went on to the Disney stuff, and so there's a, you know a, a bunch of us kind of moved on to different things. Okay, um, did you ever contemplate uh, following Robert Lamb and Bob Forward into writing episodes, and did you have any like ideas of what you were going to write as an episode? Um. You know, I, 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 at, I, at the time doing the He-Man stuff, I didn't quite think that way. Um, I, 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 I kind of came towards writing later on. You know, um, um, uh, I know Bob and Rob got in, got involved pretty early. Uh, oh, I should say too. Actually, when we're talking about about um, storyboard people, another storyboard artist was Vicky uh, Victoria Jensen. And Vicky Jensen uh, was storyboarding with us, and uh, later on, she directed the first. Um, she she directed the first Shrek, and uh, I think she did Shark Tale also at DreamWorks, and uh, so so she's had a very successful career. Wow. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. I think I think you know you know I did come around to writing some scripts in the last few years. I wrote some stuff for um, uh, a couple of episodic TV for 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 some some different employers. Um, there was a a Zorro show, and there was a thing called Legend. Uh, um, what was it? Was it the um, oh the Biker Mice from Mars series? And uh, yeah, I did some stuff on that, but uh, at this time and all, I, I hadn't really, you know, I, I was very, I was very interested in, in animating, and uh, so, so, and you know, you know, I, I, I was into polishing my skills more as an animator than thinking about writing yet. Okay, so um, with it, with us talking about the filmation stock sequence and stuff, did the more experienced directors of filmation give you advice on how to actually use the stock? system to the best of your ability yes yeah yeah we had some wonderful old veterans um i mean ed friedman was a was a director who had who had had sort of a 50-year career in 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 animation going back to the 1930s and uh, gwen wexler was a wonderful veteran artist and um, steve clark um used to direct the um 
used to work on the um, the Mr. Magoo TV show for UPA in the 60s. So there was quite a fascinating mixture of old and young artists. Uh, one of my favorites was there was this old an- animator named Jack Ozark. And Jack was an animator for Max Fleischer in the 30s. He worked on Popeyes and Betty Boops and all, you know. And um, he had a very gravelly voice. And, you know, and, and he'd run up to me and go, Kid, you're doing okay. You're doing all right, kid. You know, just keep going the way you're doing. It's fine, you know. <laughs> and as a, he, was a, he was always, like, very, like, you know, you know, when your spirits needed a lift and stuff, Jack was always a lot of fun. You know? Brilliant. So, as an artist, what was your take on the hero and the villain, He-Man and Skeletor? Well, I think um, part of the success, I think, of the He-Man and, and Skeletor dynamic was that um, the to- uh, you know the characters as toys were introduced at a time in which um, it was during the time of the first great uh, uh, video game uh, collapse. Where, you know, Pac-Man and Donkey Kong and all that sort of stuff, um, Space Invaders and all, had become very, very popular in the States, uh, oh, around the world, and um, and it grown very big. And, and people were saying, "Oh, there's going to be no more. There's going to be no more physical toys anymore. Everybody's just going to have games. It'll be nothing but games forever and ever. Amen." And and that was going to be it. And then just as soon as the as as you know as it. As the craze grew hot, it, it then cooled, and the public got bored and went on to something else. And there was a huge crash. I mean, they were they were burying uh, Atari, you know, of you know, video cassettes in landfills because there yeah, was. Yeah, that's a- right. It was ET, wasn't it? it? Was one of them, if I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, people had their, you know, they had their fun with it for a few years, and then they got tired. And 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 um, and this is right around the time that the He-Man and, and, and uh, uh, characters came on. And here you have a hero and you have a villain and they don't require batteries and they don't require instructions and you don't have to plug it into your TV and monopolize the TV from your parents. And you could just play with them and make up your own stories. And, uh, and, and something that simple was suddenly like a, a huge you know, uh, uh, sensation. Uh, you know, because I think in, you know, in the, the utter simplicity of it. Okay, so looking back, we're just going to do a couple of questions here, looking back on the show and stuff. So are you happy to have been a part of the show, and what is your own personal favorite contribution for He-Man and She-Ra? Oh, oh my, that's tough. Uh, um, yes, yes, I am happy I worked on it. You know, it's, it's funny, you know, because at the time you're working on it, you know, you don't you don't think that oh you know we're making memories for children and we're making uh, you know you know you're just doing your doing your job and you and, and and you're doing the work to the best of your ability. You know, um, there was one time we were all I, I think the night before we were watching a few people watching an episode of uh, the old uh, the old um, detective show Moonlighting, and it's a scene where the Bruce Willis is meets some of his college buddies and they sit around and they sing the theme from Top Cat. The 1960s show, and first, you know, like close friends get to call them TC, and you know, and so, so the next day we came in, and we realized that these adults are, are you know, reminiscing about this old show, and we said, you know, someday kids are going to grow up and become adults, and they're going to remember fondly the stuff we're doing right now, you know, and and it's like, oh my goodness, you mean we're making memories? You go, yeah, we are, <laughs> and this was sort of like a novel thought, you know, it hadn't crossed our minds, but. Um, yeah, I, I feel good about what I did on it, and uh, and uh, 
some of the ones that I enjoyed too was that uh, getting a chance to do some of the physical, uh, like on the when I was animating on the He-Man show, they gave me a lot of physical action. So I did a lot of He-Man punching his way through walls and ripping things up and um, throwing things. And um, I did uh, um, I did a lot of animation on that on that um, the one that Bob Arkwright directed called Evil Seed. Which was oh, the big yeah. weed, weedy character, you know, and, and uh, I did evil seed dying and falling apart and all, and uh, and you know, I don't know, it, it, a frost came up and got him, or I, I forgot what happened to him. But. Yeah, all the all the snow, and uh, then he didn't like the snow, so then he just died that way. That's right. It kind of fell apart. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, actually, that was one of my favorite shows, just because I love the relationship between He Man and, and, and Skeletor at that point, where, where He Man says, you know, we're gonna have to work together to fight this character you know you know to fight this 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 evil seed thing and skeletor's absolutely not i won't hear of it i you know i, I absolutely refuse and then and then evil seed like takes over skeletor's lair and at one point there's this shot of skeletor like under the table while while these vines are pulling his throne away and and, and skeletor's hand comes up and, and hits the the uh the uh, um um, you know the, the radio button and goes, "Oh, he man!" <laughs> <laughs> Remember that offer you made? <laughs> I just thought that was brilliant. You know. Okay. <coughs> so after all these years, can you look back at the series and name your favorite character? Mm. I, you know, I I, I think I, I which was, I think I liked Skeletor just because he was he was he was fun to draw and 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 as a villain goes. You know, even though he was evil and stuff, he 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 had a certain charm to him. You know, he he, he was sort of they 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 kind of made his character more um, multifaceted. You know, he could you know you could laugh at him once in a while. It would be a little silly once in a while, and uh, you know, you know it's always that thing of of um, of uh, sometimes authority figures who who take everything seriously are actually funnier than characters that can laugh at themselves. And Skeletor was always very serious about everything, and 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 he just was kind of fun, you know. He, he was sort of a he was sort of animation Dick Cheney or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you've just ruined Skeletor for me now. First, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, you know, you, you know. Actually, it's funny because you know, just like a year or two into it, um, uh, there was the uh, there was the Disney movie, The Black Cauldron. And the Black Cauldron, you know, had uh, you know had this villain, and you know, and uh, they've been working on Black Cauldron for so long, and it's going to be such a big deal. And it's one of like Disney's like worst performing films, you know, of that time period. And it, it really, you know, it it, it it was one of the things that that uh, contributed to the collapse and the overthrow of the of the uh, the people running Disney at the time, and and, and that brought in uh, Eisner and Katzenberg and Roy Disney, and and beginning the animation renaissance. But I remember when we um, went to the theater to see uh, the Black Cauldron, and you're looking at the Horn King, and I said that looks like Skeletor, except Skeletor has more character. <laughs> <laughs> He's more fun than this guy. Like <laughs> certainly does. Yeah. So looking back on the show, what is your honest opinion about it? Well, you know, you know, it 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 was a it was a uh, you know it was always a a, a a budget show, even though the budget was a little higher than than some other shows, and uh, and uh, you know it 
it was like one of the last big shows uh, in the states, anyway, to be done completely, uh, you know, in house. Meaning that you know it wasn't being shipped out around the world and coming back, and you know, uh, you know, all kinds of you know production issues that 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 leads to. So it was all you know within in house. So meaning that you know the each department and stuff, you could go to them just stroll over and sort of interact with people and there was a lot of wonderful there was a lot of wonderful artists from a lot of different studios you know you know mingling around together and so so i, I enjoyed the camaraderie of that of that type of project and i th- and, and and it is the kind of show that did make very strong memories for a whole generation of young people I mean, you know, for a long time, I, I you know, uh, I hadn't really thought about the show after I had moved on to Disney's and then then DreamWorks, but then, uh, you know, I, I'd been teaching college the last few years, and I and a lot of my students were raised on He-Man, and when they knew I worked on it, I was suddenly like a hero. You know, they were like so excited that to meet somebody who actually worked on uh, the show that had you know been a part of the thing, one of the things that formed their childhood. So I'm very proud of that. Yeah, that's. It's a great thrill for me to sit here and talk to the likes of yourself and Robert Lamb, you know, people who have worked in the show that meant so much to me as a childhood, you know, like, and I, I actually have a picture of my sister with the TV behind her and a picture of Ramman, uh, you know, so things like that, you know, like you look at photos and you go, oh, there's me with this and there's me with that. So uh, regarding fans, what's your opinion regarding the fans um, who love Masters of the Universe and Shira P- Princess of Power? <laughs> oh, I, I think the fans are great. I mean, the fans are the ones that have kept it alive. You know, I mean, uh, when you think of all the shows that were around at the same time, I mean, there's not the same type of uh, fierce loyalty for, like, yeah, I don't know, a Gem or a Galtar or a Challenge of the Gobots or, you know, I mean, when you think of it, it's contemporaries, you know. You know, there, there's really like uh, there, there's something about He-Man that just clicked with a lot of people, and and, and like you said, you know, it, it it made a lot of memories for a lot of young people, and there is like a, a very strong fan base loyalty, for, you know, for the show that you just don't see, and, and, and you know, in the '80s, you know, there was a lot of TV. I mean, there was a lot of programs. The G.I. Joe show and uh, Muppet Babies and, uh, you know, uh, there was so many there was so many things out there. But it's interesting that He-Man has has uh, has, uh, you know, achieved, you know, the test of time. You know, it, it, it's become sort of a a a a a, 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 um, say a cultural icon for that period. And I'm proud to have been a part of that. So, uh, obviously, this is the last question I have for you, you know, um, you were mentioned about doing things, you know, uh, being a college teacher and stuff. Uh, what have you done since then, and what are you current, wor- currently working on? And if you're wanting to divulge, you know, how people can get in touch with you, you know, share <laughs> various stories, feel free to do so. The, the floor is entirely yours, sir. Oh my goodness! Um, well, let's see. Well, well, after that, uh, uh, let's see. You, you know, I worked on the other filmation shows. There was a Fat Albert season. There was a Ghostbusters season. There was the Brave Star show, and then, um, and then I think this, the, the the studio was bought by L'Oreal Nestle. You know, it was the '80s when they used to do hostile takeovers, where like big companies would eat little companies, and it, and it kind of and filmation was kind of devoured by this larger conglomerate who basically wanted their library of films for for um, uh, for, for cable television. You know, because they because uh, uh, Lou Scheimer the head of the company had had, had kept uh, the rights to a lot of his stuff, you know, while 
you know, uh, um, other TV shows and, you know, like the, like the Looney Tunes and everything had, had passed through several hands. Lou had kept most of the, the, the filmation program. So when L'Oreal Nestle bought it, they were basically after that library. Um, but that, so um, I went to London for a little while and did some commercials. And then I, uh, I hooked up on a little film called Who Framed Roger Rabbit? <laughs> so I was awesome. So so I was a regular animator on that, and then after that, I, I was at Disney for, for for the next eight years, working on all the big musicals like you know uh, Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast and um, uh, The Lion King and uh, Aladdin and all. And then I left um, uh, in 1995 when DreamWorks set up, and I did uh, I, I helped set up DreamWorks and and I was the head of the story, storyboard department on Shrek, the first Shrek for a while, and. Um, you know, Prince of Egypt and uh, those things, and then uh, and then after that, I went over to Warner Brothers and I uh, co-directed Osmosis Jones uh, in in two thousand and one. Uh, and after that, you know, you know, I tried a few different things. You know, you know, I tried to float my own small company, and uh, uh, you know, and, and and I've been teaching as well, and I've written a couple of books. And um, yeah, you're welcome to go on my website www.tomcito.com. Cito with an S, and um, and you can see that yeah, I, I wrote a book. About the uh, about the the history of the animation trade union movement, which uh, sounds like a dry topic, but I tried to put a lot of saucy stories in it and a lot of good things. So we have communists and the mafia and sexual harassment and all kinds of lovely things that um, <laughs> people would enjoy reading about. And um, yeah, actually, it was at the London Review of Books gave it a good review. Yeah, we got a good review from the London Review of Books from Leonard Malton, the film critic, and the International Society of Socialism. So the socialists like my book, so I'm very happy about that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I've been teaching, and um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Currently, I, I'm writing a new book, a history of computer graphics from the 1940s. Uh, you know, you know, just because when people think about computer animation now, they all they all think, oh, you know, George Lucas and Pixar, and George Lucas and Pixar, and George Lucas, and and, and I thought, you know, there's there's so much more to it. It's such a more Involved story, you know, on so many levels. You know, things happening internationally and and in other countries, and you know, the uh, in the the uh, Air Force was doing a lot. Uh, U.S. Air Force during the Cold War was putting a lot of money in flight simulators, trying to make them like the better the virtual landscape they could create for pilots, the better the simulation, you know, for the training program, and all that stuff just became like what you use now on your Game Boy. You know, it's, it's interesting to see how research for one thing turns into something else. You know, like um, um, one of the founders, one of the um, the early scientists, a guy named Ivan Sutherland, who wrote the first program for uh, called Sketchpad, where a computer did a drawing instead of drew a line instead of numbers. This is like 1962. Uh, in an interview, he spoke about how things that are done for research for one purpose, uh, you, you, it's amazing like where they wind up. And he says, in the 60s, we worked on all these programs for guided missiles. We had all these heat-seeking uh, you know, sensors and things that we built into the nose cones of, of ballistic missiles. And he says, you know what that technology is now? He says, when, you, when you're standing at a urinal and you step away and it flushes, Saying, I could make a reference to that. To you're taking that and then the P word, but I'll not bother. There we go. <laughs> right. 
Okay, well, uh, Mr. Cito, it's been an absolute joy and privilege uh, speaking to you. Th thank you so much for uh, taking the time out to uh, answer some of the questions. I really do appreciate it. And just thank you for all the work that you've done and He-Man and She-Ra that have helped mould my childhood and made me what I am today by actually doing this Master of the Universe Chronicles. Uh, just thank you so much. Thank you very much, Chris. I, I, I had a wonderful time. That's good. It's good to know that I can invite people on here and the, they can uh, have a good time. The drink you just heard there was supplied by me, just uh, filtered through Skype there now. But thank you uh, <laughs> once again, Mr. Cedo. Lovely. Okay, so uh, that was Tom Cedo with his thoughts and just uh, some of the topics we went over there to do with him working in Filmation and uh, doing some storyboard uh, work, etc. So I uh, hope you'll join us again next month and until next time. Let the power return!